Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. How many people here for the first time tonight? Bunch of new folks. Welcome to all of you. Welcome back to everybody else. Welcome to anybody who's joining us for the first time online on Zoom. I like to um, begin class by asking you to talk to each other, meet, meet some people in the room that you don't know yet or that you don't know well to uh, build community. It's one of the core principles of, of Buddhism to establish and um, and maintain friendships, <clears throat> relationships. Welcome. Come on in. If we need more chairs, we can pull some from down over there. Yeah. Um, it's one of the core principles that, that uh, part of our Buddhist practice isn't just meditation or study or learning, but it's, it's relational. All of Buddhism really is about how do we uh, relates to our own mind. A lot, a lot of Buddhism is internal relationship. How do we relate to our own emotions and sensations and mind states? But a core part of it, one of the refuges, <clears throat> the three refuges of Buddhism is uh, in community and, and relational connection, wise friendship. Um, I've... Uh, Got a couple friends that don't usually come to class here tonight who, you know, for the last 20 or so years have been my sangha, have been part of my recovery and my, uh, you know, the guys that I pick up the phone and call when I'm bored <laughs> or when, uh, you know, suffering is happening or, you know, or something good is happening. And that important, you know, and they're my friends from recovery, from practice, from uh, you know, being on a path of awakening and healing and so important for us. Some, some, some of you come here and you already have that crew. Some of you log in to Zoom or, uh, and you already have that crew. But a lot of people end up in a meditation group like this and being like, I'm the only meditator I know. Uh, even if you already are in recovery and your friends in recovery don't really meditate, don't really practice this Buddhist uh, path of compassion and forgiveness and and unpacking the self and, and seeing through the self-centeredness of the, of the human condition. So this is a great place to make those connections. It takes a while, you gotta keep coming. It's not like you came once and you're, all of a sudden you have homies. Uh, but if you come regularly to, to group, you start to meet people and connect with them and, and hopefully develop those relationships outside of, of the meditation center in your life. Try to come up with, uh, a prompt, an icebreaker for you to talk to each other about. Um, kind of drawing a blank tonight because I don't really have a topic. I think I'm going to mostly do a Q&A, talk to see what you want to talk about tonight. Um, so just turn to <clears throat> two or three people in the room, introduce yourselves, maybe talk a little bit about how long you've been coming to meditation practice, why you're coming to meditation practice. Uh, and, and meet some new folks in the room. We'll take about five minutes to do this. At home, I'll put you in breakout rooms. You have about five minutes to meet some new folks on Zoom. 
So go ahead, meet some folks. I was in London a bunch of years ago riding the subway, the tube, and uh, there was a sticker on the wall on the um, on the on the subway, and it said in something it said something like in high congestion hours, passengers may sit on other passengers' laps. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, London's so progressive. And it took me a minute before I realized it was a really well-placed graffiti. Like somebody had taken the font and put the stickers on the tube. And I was like, wow, you can just sit on people's laps on the fucking tube? So we're going to implement that here if it gets too full during meditation. So we're to like change that? Meditators may sit on other meditators' feet. Get canceled again real quick for that shit. It's a thing. So we'll have a period of meditation, find a way to sit that's feels sustainable for a period of stillness, upright, relaxed. Allow your hands to rest in whatever position feels comfortable and your legs in your lap. Let your back be upright without being rigid or stiff. When you're ready, allowing your eyes to be gently closed. Taking a moment to release any unnecessary tension the body may be holding. Softening the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Relaxing, releasing shoulder tension if you can. And as you exhale, soften your belly. So often the belly gets tight with resistance or with clinging. Try to soften your belly. And as we establish mindfulness, the practice of non-judgmental present time awareness, try to do so with an attitude, an intention of kindness, of friendliness, of acceptance. Buddhist mindfulness practice is paying attention without judging what's happening. Letting the mind do whatever it's doing, the body feel whatever it's feeling, the heart. Bringing non-judgmental awareness to our present time experience, physical, emotional, mental, all of the sense doors included, sounds, sights, smells, tastes. Ultimately, in mindfulness, there's no such thing as a distraction. The mind can wander to the future and past. It's not a distraction. It's just the mind thinking. Sounds or sensations, nothing can truly distract us because it's all happening here and now. 
that having been said, it's useful to keep it simple in the beginning and focus our attention on the breath, breathing in, know that you're breathing in, feel the sensations of the breath. Breathing out, know that you're breathing out. Let the thoughts recede to the background, not trying to stop our minds, but we are trying to stop paying attention to what our mind is doing. Let it be in the background. As you intentionally bring your awareness into the body, first foundation of mindfulness, physical sensations of sitting, and the sensation that the breath creates as it comes and goes. Mindfulness of the body breathing. Of course, the awareness is drawn away from the breath back into thinking or a sound, an emotion we get involved in. Non-judgmental, kind awareness, acknowledging this is thinking about the future or the past. This is hearing or feeling. And then come back to the breath, return to the anchor object of awareness for now. Back to knowing that you're breathing in and out, perhaps noting in and out.
one teaching, the Buddha said that this body, the first foundation of mindfulness itself will reveal all of the Dharma, all of the truth about reality, nature, the true nature of things revealed in the impermanent experience of sensation. The true nature of things revealed in the impersonal way that the body breathes all by itself, sensations arise and pass. So easy to get stuck in the trap of trying to intellectualize wisdom, thinking our way to freedom. Buddhist mindfulness encourages an embodied experience, not a intellectual idea, but the direct experience of the moment to moment feelings, sensations. That are happening in the body. And of course, as we expand from the narrow focus on the breath, the body includes the sense doors, sounds, the ears, hearing, nose smelling, eyes seeing, tongue tasting. And of course, our brain is also part of the body. We begin to investigate and inquire into not just what's happening moment to moment, whether the breath is coming and going or what sensations are happening. But what is the feeling tone? What are you experiencing as pleasant? Take a moment to investigate your heart, your mind, your body. Is there any pleasure happening right now? Even if it's subtle. Often in meditation, I'll bring my attention to my hands resting. And just that warmth, that contact, subtly pleasant, feels good. Is that also your experience? You get to see for yourself. We can investigate our experience for unpleasantness, what's painful. Perhaps it's the mind producing painful worries, doubts, fears. 
Maybe the body is becoming uncomfortable from sitting still. What's unpleasant? If anything. How much of our experience is neither pleasant nor unpleasant? Neutral. We can feel the sensations, but they don't hurt. They don't feel particularly good. Thoughts are coming, sounds, but neither pleasant nor unpleasant. In this way, the practice becomes more inclusive of the whole body, the heart, the mind, the sense doors. As you bring your attention to your mind rather than ignoring it, observing both the process, the impermanent nature of thought, how it arises, passes, how the mind proliferates thoughts, one thought leading to the next. How repetitive sometimes thoughts are, the cycle. The mind having that same argument over and over, that same worry or fantasy. Observing the mind like you observe the breath, breath coming and going, thoughts arising and passing. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. Eventually, it becomes clear that the only wise relationship to unpleasant experience is compassion, learning to tolerate pain and meet it with kindness, not trying to get rid of our pain, not Blaming our pain for our unhappiness, but tending to it, responding 
wisely to our own unpleasant thoughts, emotions, sensations. As mindfulness reveals the impermanent nature of all sensation, of all emotion, of all thought, we also begin to see how attached we get, how much clinging, craving. How we tend to meet the pleasant with wanting more, with wanting to keep it. And it becomes clear that the only wise relationship to pleasure is non-attachment, letting go. Perhaps let the rest of your meditation be simply the practice of letting go. Let go of needing this moment to be any different than it is. Soften your belly and accept what's happening right now. Let go of needing your mind to be peaceful or your heart to be open. Accept yourself just as you are. Let go. Of course, if your mind is peaceful and heart does feel open, that's okay. But let go of any clinging to it. This is the impermanent experience of a peaceful mind. You may even use the words, let go, like a mantra. Place those words in your mind over and over. Let go. Let go of the future, all of your plans, all of your hopes, all of your fears. Let go of the past. all of the joys and sorrows you've experienced so far, just memories, let go.
present time awareness of impermanence. Just thoughts arising and passing, sensations. It's not what's happening in the mind or the heart or the body. That's how we're relating to it. Even the pain can be met with compassion, with acceptance. Even the difficult emotions, the sadness, the grief, the fears and sorrows. On one level, very personal to our experience, our life. And on another level, not so personal at all, just the human condition. My teacher's teacher said, if we let go a little bit of that which we've been clinging to, craving for, identifying with, we'll have a little bit of happiness. If we let go a lot, let go of the future needing to be the way we want it to be, letting go of the past, forgiving. He said, then you'll have a lot of happiness, a lot of contentment, well-being. When we let go completely, absolute non-clinging to self, non-identification, with the self-centeredness of the mind, non-resistance to the unpleasant experiences of life. He said, then you will know the happiness of the Buddha, of being awake. Over and over, we relinquish our clinging, we let go, come back to the breath, come back to the body, disengage from the contents of the mind, reestablish the intention of compassion, kindness.
It's useful to take a moment after you have um, completed a formal meditation to reflect on what the fuck just happened in your mind, in your heart, in your body. Things are moving so fast. Sometimes the instructions point to um, like you're able to catch in real time what's happening in your mind and in your body and in your experience. But by the time, you know, by the time we say present, it's gone. (laughs) By the time we say in, it's already, you know, sort of the beginning, middle and end, and you're already breathing out. You know, so you catch you catch some of it in real time, but a lot of it with the mind and with the emotions and sensations, and you're recollecting what you just what just happened. I was my mind was proliferating these fantasies or these memories or these, and it can be quite useful after meditation to reflect on what just what just happened. Oh, my mind was thinking about this and my body was feeling that. And I had some ability to tolerate the discomfort or I had a lot of aversion to the discomfort or. And then you'll see over the months and years how your relationship to what's happening is shifting. Oh, I used to sit here in agony, you know, uncomfortable and hating it. And then oh, I started to be uncomfortable, but hating it less. And then I started to be uncomfortable, but completely okay with being uncomfortable, at ease and acceptance of pain. If you meditate long enough, you'll come to the place. uh, It's one of the main skills we're building. (laughs) Learn how to be uncomfortable. Get really good at that. It will change your fucking life if you get good at being uncomfortable. You know, not very many people are actually good at being in pain and tending to it and meeting it with friendliness. It's completely counter to our survival instinct that says, fight, flight, freeze, get rid of it. It's uncomfortable, avoid it, ignore it, suppress it. And mindfulness, we're turning towards it. And you'll see as you recollect, you reflect, oh, the the needle towards tolerance, towards compassion, towards is shifting over the years of meditating, getting better at being uncomfortable. And there's a, I think a direct connection between learning to be in physical pain that starts to apply to physical, uh, uh, emotional pain. You start to have more tolerance for difficult afflictive emotions and difficult mind states from learning to sit still and doing that regularly every day, sitting still with the achy knees, with the sore back. And then you start to say, oh, I have more room for fear. Oh, that's really unpleasant. But I know how to be with unpleasantness. I learned that from sitting still. Anyways, I'm going off on a tangent as I do, but 
the importance of reflection. And I feel like with a kind of learn from not so much in real time, but looking back, I'm like, oh, yep, making a little bit of progress or a little less reactive, a little more ability to let go. So I'm not going to, um, I don't have a topic. I would like to do a Q&A tonight. And you can ask anything you want about the meditation instructions, any aspect of Buddhism. I may or may not have an answer for you. Um, I'll let you know if I, if I don't, but I'll, I'll try to answer your questions. I usually have some views and opinions to share with you. Um, so anything you want to ask, if you want to ask something at home, you can raise your hand in the uh reactions section their hand will go up and in here you can raise your your real hand please ramage um i was just listening i was listening to a dharma talk with a uh a teacher i think you know from wherever she was two days ago and he was saying something about how uh, that the buddha didn't really um teach about mindfulness of of the mind or the thoughts, or just the, but, but well, anyway, long story short, but that that gets taught a lot about now. Um, and I was just uh, curious your perspective on that, or maybe curious your perspective on, on that, because I feel like I hear about, I do hear about that. I mean, I don't know the context. If you want to later, Ramage, you could send me the talk and I could kind of see what he was saying and what the context was. Uh, but the, the third foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of the mind. And, uh, and there's both the kind of the content of, oh, oh, my mind is filled with lust. Oh, look at that. Look, my mind is lusting. It's craving. It's desiring. Or, you know, the content, or it's filled with hatred. Oh, look at that, my these resentments. And, and the Buddha actually says, sort of name it, know it. Oh, this is fear in the mind. This is anger in the mind. So in the traditional Theravadan Satipatthana teaching, that's in it, for sure. Observing the mind, training the mind, the brain in that way, and knowing these uh, mind states. And also... A big encouragement and all of the four foundations of mindfulness on the process, the impermanent, the arising and passing, knowing these are thoughts arising and passing. These are emotions arising and passing. These are sensations arising. So impermanence is always the, it's the key insight. It's the, like so much of the key, uh, not just with the breath, but also with the thoughts. Oh, that whatever is happening in my mind, it's going to pass. We get so identified with it. We take it so personal. Um, I, you've heard me say this, but I would love to say it. I, I guess I usually frame it kind of as a question of like, why do we take our minds so personal? Where like when you're being mindful of your breath, you're, I mean, some of, I mean, are you sitting here going like, I am breathing in now and I am breathing out. Um, and everything is like really I, that's me, I'm breathing. Like, you know, your body breathes all by itself, right? Be a little mindful for a little bit, you'll figure that out. Or your heart beating, you know, the heart beats all by itself. You're not sitting here making your heart beat. But the mind, everything that rises in our mind, we're like, that's me, I'm thinking about 
I'm planning, I'm remembering, I'm judging, I'm afraid, whatever it is. But the mind thinks all by itself. And so part of mindfulness is that non-judgmental present time awareness and starting to have that discernment of there are volitional thoughts, just like with the breath is a good example. You can choose to take deep breaths. You can choose to hold your breath. You can choose to hyperventilate if you want. You have influence over how you breathe, but your body's going to keep breathing with or without your permission as long as you're alive. It just breathes all by itself. Likewise, with the mind, we can plan, we can be creative, we can remember, we can volitionally, we can do that stuff. But without any volition, the mind's going to continue to plan and remember and hope and fear and lust and judge and all of that impersonal, non-volitional, all by itself. And so from my understanding, the Buddha was quite clear about, it's very important to observe that, to investigate it, to come to know the impermanent and impersonal nature of human thought. And to have that discernment between what thoughts are you thinking intentionally and what thoughts are thinking themselves. And you'll start to see most of them are thinking themselves, right? You sit down in meditation and in some way or another, you tell your mind to shut up, right? Not maybe consciously, but on some level, we, we come here and we're like, okay, I'm going to sit, I'm going to pay attention to my body. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> and it plans and it remembers and it judges and it fears and it starts commenting on your own experience. You ever been there in meditation and then your mind say to you, I'm doing really good at this. I'm not thinking about anything right now. And you're like, oh shit. Well, oh, that's a, I think that's a thought. That I just thought I wasn't thinking. So I don't know. I mean, Fronsdale knows what he's talking about, has studied, that's who you're talking about, right? Has studied the stuff. He knows what he's talking about. Um, but he's also got a Zen, uh, you know, long-term Zen training. So, you know, sometimes he might bring some sort of Zen emptiness teaching in and say like, you know, we don't have to do the four foundations, just be present, right? Sit there, face the wall, be present. <laughs> Uh, even though he really knows the Theravadan teachings very well too. So I'm not sure the context of why he's saying the Buddha didn't teach us to observe the mind in that way, because it's pretty common understanding in Theravadan Buddhism that it's part of what we're doing. I think that he had some context there that I don't quite know. Please in the back. Do you always meet your pain with kindness, or is there ever a time where, let's say, outside parties might be causing pain through selfishness, lack of empathy, um, insensitivity? In those cases, is it better to you know, let go, be quiet, and walk away? 
or do you stand up for yourself and say, you know, this is fucked up? <laughs> uh, could you hear the question at home? Could people? No, would you paraphrase them for us, bro? Try to paraphrase it. The question was, or do we always, um, should we always be kind? Should we always meet painful experiences with kindness? Uh, and is there a place sometimes for a, um, what I would maybe paraphrase as like a, a, a fierce boundary that says like, this is fucked up and I'm going to you know, remove myself from it. Or maybe even some, some level of confrontation with uh, people in, in certain situations. So I wanted, like, when you started to ask it, you know, you said, do you always, are we supposed to always? And on some level, uh, yes, the answer is yes, always. Always be kind. Always be compassionate. Always. If you want to not suffer about what's happening, kindness and compassion is the only way that you're not going to suffer about what's happening. That having been said, <laughs> have to have enough humility to know we're not going to do it perfectly. And even the word kindness, um, compassion has a specific meaning, which is meeting something painful with um, caring about it, with friendliness, with warmth, with. But kindness is uh, situational. Sometimes uh, it's, kindness isn't always nice, right? We, that, that word kindness, we think like, well, I've got to, if I'm being kind, I'm being gentle and nice and smiley and, you know. But sometimes the kindest thing to do is to have that really firm boundary. And um, there's a story from, that I just thought I remembered from, um, Sharon Salzberg, who was talking about when she was in India in the 70s, and she was studying with this meditation master, and she was on her way to her meditation teacher. She was in a, a rickshaw or some kind of something like that. And somebody started grabbing her tits. Uh, some Indian guy on the street was grabbing her tits while she was. And uh, she said, you know, I just kind of froze. And then she went to her teacher, Deepama, and, and Deepama, and she said, you know, I got sexually assaulted on the way to meditation today. And um, and what do I, what do I do? Am I supposed to just like radiate compassion towards this pervert? <laughs> right? Like I want to be a good Buddhist, but oh, like, what am I supposed to do? And, um, Deepama, who's a, her teacher, an elderly Indian woman said, uh, did you have your umbrella with you? And they're in, um, Calcutta and it always rains. And she said, of course I had my umbrella with me. She said, well, if anything like that ever happens again, with all the loving kindness you can muster, take your umbrella and smack him in the head. <laughs> that sometimes the, you know, kind thing to do is to, you know, and Eric and I were talking earlier last, yes, last week I did that whole talk about radical nonviolent action and, um, yes, radical nonviolence, but there's a place for self-defense and there's a place for fierce boundaries and there's a pace, place for speaking up and getting loud and getting big and, and for protecting yourself and hit them with the fucking umbrella sometimes is the kind and appropriate response. It's a tricky thing because we don't want to start justifying violence and start being like, well, you know, you offended me. 
So I'm going to hit you with my umbrella. Uh, it's different when there's a physical, you know, boundary uh, crossing than, uh, well, you said something I don't like and, you know, uh, now I'm going to try to hurt you. <clears throat> Compassion is always the right thing. And kindness is situational. Sometimes the kindest thing to do is to walk away from a relationship, to walk away from a situation. And they might accuse you of abandonment and they might accuse you of um, something, but it's actually the kindest thing to do for both of you. Because if I stay in this, I'm gonna be unkind. And, and even if I can tolerate your uh, bad behavior, me staying it isn't even kind to you because I'm allowing you to create that negative karma for yourself. You've, let that soak in for a moment. <laughs> Boundaries with people at times because you don't want them to create that negative karma for themselves by the abusive behavior. Right? We, we have such a self-cherishing like, well, me, I don't want to be abused. I've got good boundaries. But try to go all the way to like, no, I want to do this for you because you keep fucking hurting yourself by the way you treat me. You keep hurting yourself, your karma, by the way you treat me. And I'm not going to allow that to continue for you. I can tolerate it because I'm empty of self. <laughs> but it's no good for you. So I'm going to have a vehement strong, kind, go fuck yourself in your heart. With all of the go fuck yourself in your heart, but with a kindness and compassion and love. And, you know, it's all in the tone. You know, when it comes to fuck you, it's all in the tone. Cause you know, that sort of can be used in such a harsh, like I want to hurt you. Sometimes it's just like, mm -mm. and it's, a, it's actually from a loving place. Eric. Um, so I hear about suffering all the time, and um, yeah, I suffer a lot. That's why I'm here. But is it the Buddhist belief that all most of life is suffering, and this is why we meditate to suffer less? Because I'm. I mean, there's a lot of joy in life too, as well. But is that? I'm attached to that joy. Is there suffering there? Because I want it to stay the same. You know, I get caught a little bit. I mean, probably the simple answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you could hear him at home, but the way he framed it was, uh, is, you know, Buddhism is the Buddhist teaching um, that most of life is suffering. And that we meditate, we follow, you know, I would add, you know, the five precepts, the eightfold path, that what we're doing here is to mitigate and to decrease the suffering and end suffering. So the, the second part of absolutely, we're training our minds, as I've said, and I'll keep saying, to let go of, you know, to, to respond with non-attached enjoyment, appreciation to the joy, to stop ruining the joy in our lives. How often are we ruining the good shit by taking it hostage, by clinging to it, by getting addicted to it, by, right? And so a huge part of what we're doing is learning that non-attached 
Let me just learn to enjoy the good stuff without fucking ruining it. Let it be impermanent. It's arising, it's passing, it's coming through. So much joy to be experienced in life, but our clinging, which isn't your fault, but it's just the human tendency, fucks it up. Or the aversion, all of the pain, there's all of this unavoidable pain of existence. Our natural tendency is meeting it with aversion and making it worse, rather than just being like, whoa, this is really painful. Let me tend to it. We hate it. We carry it around, you know, still holding on to the painful shit that happened to us 30 years ago, wearing it as a fucking badge and a, you know, yes, this is who I am. I was abused 30 years ago. It's who I am. It's like that shows, and I'm not dismissing our trauma, but the way that we get identified with it and we're, we're, embodying it in everything rather than saying like, I'm tending to this, I'm forgiving, I'm having compassion for both the ways that I was affected and the confusion of the people that hurt us or the ways we've been confused and hurt others. And so I'm not sure, it does seem fair to say most of life, but then again, it depends. You know, also suffering, suffering sounds so big. Right? Suffering sounds so extreme, like, oh, I'm always miserable. Life is suffering. But suffering also just means a lack of contentment. And you can ask yourself, how often, how many moments in the day are you completely content, totally at ease? Right? The opposite, you know, there's suffering or there's nirvana, right? There's the first noble truth, dukkha suffering, dissatisfaction, uneasiness, and then there's dukkha. How much of your life are you completely at peace in this world? You don't have to give me a percentage, but we can all go like, oh yeah, not that often. So I guess most of the time I am in some level of uneasiness or dissatisfaction or suffering. Not, you don't get that much. Is it even 50-50? I love to say that Chinese Buddhist um, saying that life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Do you get that? Do you get 50% joy in your life? Is it good half of the time? And then again, with the joy, it depends. Are you able to meet those those 10,000 joys with non-attachment? Or do we turn nine... (laughs) 9,099 of those joys into suffering, into sorrow. Every time something joyous and good happens, a fucking master of destroying it, clinging to it, turning it into grief. Non-attachment will give us 10,000 joys. But then there's still 10,000, you know, we say sorrows, but... um, 10,000 painful experiences. The more we learn to tolerate it, the more we learn to have compassion, then it's just 10,000 difficult sensations, difficult emotions. You know, still, they're still difficult. They're still painful. They're still unpleasant. Even enlightenment doesn't get rid of pain. And maybe this is the most important piece is making sure that when we say suffering, we don't mean just unpleasant. Because even if you become a Buddha, you're still going to have a bunch of pain in your life. 
bad news. <laughs> Spoiler, right? Like we kind of, we have this unconscious hope that, well, if I get spiritual enough, won't all the pain go away? Won't I just, can I just like have joy all of the time? I, you know, I want to snort it. <laughs> I want it to feel good all the time. But it's not what Buddhism is teaching. Buddhism is teaching us to respond wisely to not create that suffering by resisting and clinging, but to enjoy the, the 10,000 pleasant experiences that we have every day and the 10,000 painful experiences that we have every day. And you know, on subtler and subtler levels to not create suffering around it. I'll take one online and then I'll come to you. Uh, Jeff, your question went away. Well, I'll go to Kristen. If yours comes back, Jeff, I'll come back to you. I'll let Kristen go ahead. I can, I can yeah. bug you anytime. Thanks, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> so with like school starting back up and just busyness and work and all the shenanigans, I'm trying to sort of schedule like to just have a good daily routine again. And so I'm, I'm looking at some options of like, okay, what, you know, scheduling sit time. And so I was curious if you have like, okay, day versus night, kind of a twofer day versus night sitting like morning. Yeah. And also if I have like a 30 minute goal, breaking that up sometimes into two sits for one day, or, I mean, obviously the longer I sit, the more uncomfortable I get, the better experience because I get to push through that stuff. But yeah. Do you have any insight or thoughts on that? It's pretty, uh, could people hear the question? It's about, you know, daily practice. When should we do it? Uh, it's pretty traditional that people seem to, Buddhists seem to think it's better to sit early in the morning. Uh, there's even, there's this bias towards like dawn, like you should get up before the sunrise every day and meditate for two hours. I think that bias is because the Buddha got enlightened at dawn, you know, and so that's the best time the world is quiet. So you can, my own feeling, my own opinion is it doesn't matter when it's more for you, what fits in your schedule, what uh, is your temperament? Some people are like, I can't meditate before coffee. And my morning is too busy. Uh, I got to get the kids ready and I got to get to school and I got to get to the office or whatever it is. After work, I have time to wind down and do a daily practice in the evening. Uh, there, I, I do, does make sense that actually starting your day with that mindfulness intention with, uh, I'm going to try to bring this not just off the cushion into my activities, into my relationships, into everything I do today. But you have to find for yourself, Kristen, and everyone else, what fits for you. And it is wise to schedule it and to be like, you know, 7 a.m. fits and I'm going to have my cushion and my little altar or whatever it is, my couch, my chair, whatever it is, and I'm going to get my ass there. I one teacher who said, he said he had struggled with a, finding a daily practice for years. So finally, he just committed to before I leave the house, I will put my ass on my meditation cushion every day. No time limit. No 30 minute. No, just I have to. And he said once in a while, I would just go put my ass on it and walk out the door. <laughs> he said, but most of the time I found when I put my ass on the cushion, I'd stay there for a while. 
And that commitment to taking the posture turned into 10 minutes, turned into 20 minutes, turned into 30 minutes. So you, you guys, everybody has to find that for themselves. I don't like to be real prescriptive with people's practices, um, encouraging you to find that time. And of course, it's okay to break it up into 15 minute periods. And as you answered in your question, uh, it is better to sit longer. To get uncomfortable is part of the point. And if you only sit until you're uncomfortable and then you get up, sit through that. Be uncomfortable. Work with the different mind states, different emotions that come through. Work with the pain in your knee, the fidgetiness, the anxiousness. You'll never get free if you, you know, it's exposure therapy. Meditation is expose, expose yourself to the difficulties. It's not about avoiding them. It's about sitting with them. And so sit until, you know, that past that 20 minutes, past that 30 minutes. Hope that's helpful. Please. Um, I just want to know if you have like any advice to give, you know, like a young man uh, you know, growing up, finding his way, not necessarily a Buddhist, but just how to live with peace and not try to fit in or, you know, how to find their own way. And I like the uh, the question for those of you at home that might not have heard it was um, advice about kind of growing up and finding finding one's own way um, and that kind of not necessarily trying to fit in and I don't I don't I don't really have a lot of advice that that kind of advice um, I can only really reflect on my own experience so I've, I've often reflected on how like when I was young I started getting lots of tattoos partially because I wanted to fit in with the outsiders mm -hmm. and partially because I didn't want to fit in with mainstream society. And then as I got older and more and more people were getting tattooed, I was like, fuck, like <laughs> I was trying to not be part of this thing. And now I'm part of this thing. And now it's like more rebellious to not have tattoos. <laughs> it's like, it's cooler to not be tattooed than to be tattooed at this point. Um, what Buddhism teaches is that being kind and being mindful, being compassionate, being forgiving, being generous, being loving is um, a radical act and that it's counter to our human instincts. And it's a little bit where we were talking about with, with Eric about um, it's natural for humans to look to sense pleasures as a source of happiness. It's natural for us to look to material things as a source of happiness. And of course, in our capitalist advertisement, you know, driven society, we get getting constant messages that you'll be happy if you uh, fit in and if you are wealthy and if you are sexy and if you are, you know, have enough followers on your social media. I was a little bit heartbroken um, this weekend. I took my son to 
uh, play laser tag and he saw a TikTok star at, at laser tag. <laughs> and he was so fucking impressed. He's like, that guy has 25 million followers. And I was a little bit like, oh shit, like that's what a terrible thing to look up to. You know, in our society where it's like, that's success. You're a social media mogul. That's what I want to be. If I could have 25 million followers, I could, you know, monetize that shit. <laughs> Anyways, Buddhism teaches something that is so counter to not just our American society. The Buddha was saying this about his society 2,500 years ago. He said it's a, he said it's a culture of greed. It's a culture of hatred. It's a culture of sexism and racism. And he said, and I'm trying to go against the stream, against greed, against hatred, against the delusion that sense pleasures or material things are going to lead to happiness. Now, the truth is, I think the truth is, um, we can't talk anybody out of anything for the most part, I don't know. Maybe once in a while we can inspire someone to maybe interventions work sometimes, I don't know. But for the most part, I, I tend to feel, and maybe it's my own adversarial personality, but nobody could talk me into doing anything good for myself ever. <laughs> I had to in some way or another come to it on my own out of desperation, out of, all of the dead ends. I had to try that. Like maybe I'll find happiness in drugs, maybe in sex, maybe, and, you know, and then being like, oh, that shit doesn't work. I feel like it's one of the reasons why I landed in Buddhism because I had a core sense, you know, and and that's maybe the question right now is uh, it's such, a, I, I felt, feel like it's, a, it's such a blessing if people have a core sense of dissatisfaction, <laughs> a sense um, of being able to see there's something really wrong with this world and that the false promises of happiness through material and sensual and that it's just a sham. And for whatever reason, my own trauma or my like I just, from a young age, I just knew like this society is fucked. This, fuck this world. The racism, the sexism, the power, the ignorance, the corruption, you know, and I was raised on punk rock. So they were, you know, brainwashing me into seeing that the society was, but even before the socio-political education that punk rock is, um, I just had a core sense of like, there's something wrong with this world. And so for me, when I came to, to Buddhism and, and the Buddha was saying like, yeah, there's no happiness to be found in the material world. It's an inside job. It's a spiritual awakening that has to go against greed and against hatred and against self-centered delusion. It just resonated. I was just like, yeah, finally, someone's telling the truth. Someone's telling, you know, just for me, it felt like, yes, this rings true. So I, I'm not big on giving advice. My father said to me once, who was also a bit of a Buddhist, 
<laughs> Hindu, Buddhist, shamanistic, stoner, dude. <laughs> he said, you know, the one thing you want to give to your children, he, he said for himself, he said, as a meditator, as a spiritual person, the one thing you want to give to your children more than anything else is the love for the truth, for the Dharma. You know, you, you really hope, I hope that my children want to seek wisdom, want to seek compassion. Want to, and it's the one thing that you cannot give to anybody. They have, that has to come from them. Has to come from within. We can't talk anybody into meditating. Remember, my parents used to pay my older brother to meditate. <laughs> He's still a practicing alcoholic. Still a fucking mess. They didn't try to teach me to meditate. They knew I was busy stealing their weed. <laughs> but then when I was a teenager and I was in enough suffering and enough pain, I was like, okay, fine. Okay, I'll try meditation. You know, came to it out of my, out of my own. And then he said to me, he's like, I'm so uh, grateful. I'm so happy that, that you decided through your own suffering and trials and errors and that you wanted to follow this path. And my other siblings, none of them did really. But, you know, one out of four is not bad. Online, Lubco. Lubco. I know I fucked this up last time too. No, you did it. You did it right. Good to see you. Um, I wonder now if you can speak to uh, emptiness and uh, kind of finding your own way, because there, my thoughts on that are, you know, I understand emptiness as, a, as this wonderful thing, uh, you know, that en encompasses everything. It's the empty of uh, being free of uh, attachments. But on the other hand, um, on the other hand, we usually... Uh, when when we practice meditation or we kind of get into Buddhism, we usually um, step outside of the social of our social circles, um, and you, we cut our relationships. And I wonder, and that's the emptiness that I feel um, is not as good. Uh, is uh, is the real emptiness. The first one was more like ideal, uh, you know, um, ideal uh, what we are aspiring to. So, um, yeah, I wonder if you can speak to that uh, kind of finding your own way at the same time, kind of stepping outside of all these social ties that it's almost like taking the brain out of the body and Yes. So if you can speak to that. I don't know if I completely understand the, the question. Um, I was wondering, actually, if you were talking about loneliness rather than emptiness of stepping away from it, some of it, the connection. It probably, it's probably connected to. Yeah. Like if the question was like to anybody in the room, like how many people would trade their lives as they are for, you know, going into the cave and kind of increasing probability that they become enlightened. Uh, I, you know, I wonder how many would go for the cave. Well, I mean, I, um... would... 
I mean, maybe, I don't know if this is your question or not, but my experience with practicing Buddhism for decades now uh, is that there are periods of going into the cave, going on retreat, important. It's been really important for me to take those weeks, sometimes months, and go, you know, disengage from my responsibilities and my relationships and go in, into the, the retreat cave but always re-emerging into my relationships and into the Sangha, like we, like we start here every week. Um, relationships are central in Buddhism, and it's not about going and living in a cave. And in some ways, in Theravadan Buddhism, I know you study some Tibetan, some other traditions, I think, um, but in, in early Buddhism, in Theravadan Buddhism, the Buddha forbid people from going and living in caves. He said, this is relational, and it's a relationship with the monastics and the lay people, the householders, the villagers. And so one of the ways that he forbid people from leaving, completely leaving the relational world was he said, you can't keep any food overnight. You can't take your food up to the cave and go live in retreat. He said, you need to go in, you can live in the forest and meditate all day, but you need to go and ask for lunch every single day, and you can't keep any of the leftovers. Only what you eat for that one day was the original tradition in an order to keep people in relationship with each other. We're dependent on each other. We're connected to each other. We're interconnected with each other. So I, I feel like um, there can be periods in this process of awakening where you feel more isolated and more alone and more um, disconnected, especially if you're the only serious meditator that you know, and you haven't really connected with other serious mm -hmm. meditators. But then you find communities where it's like, okay, cool, finally, I'm not alone. I'm with a whole bunch of other people, some who've been at it longer than me, some who are brand new to it, some that are peers, and, and you develop those relationships and hopefully sustain those relationships long term. The last thing that I'll say, and we're just about out of time, so I'm going to, when you were saying empty, emptiness, using the term emptiness, it is used, it's, uh, you know, shunyata is used in the Theravada, anatta, empty, you know, uh, not self, but empty of what? So we use it, in Buddhism, we use the term emptiness, empty of, but ask yourself, empty of what? So it's referring to two things, empty of a permanent self, but really just empty of permanence. Is there anything permanent anywhere? No. <laughs> I mean, you get to find out for yourself, but look, is there anything permanent in this being, in this, you know, existence? Is there anything permanent in nature? The answer is no. And so therefore everything is empty of a permanent existence. Everything's empty. And we can get, you know, kind of, whoa, wow. But it's actually no big deal. Yeah, everything's just empty of permanence. Duh, right? So, oh, emptiness, oh, you're so empty. Oh, impermanence. So, okay, yeah, that's fucking brilliant, emptiness. And I don't mean to, to diss, 
but also I think Buddhism and some traditions make it into this big, huge, magnificent thing. And then you break it down and you're like, oh, you're just saying everything's impermanent? I get it. I get it. Everything's impermanent. Empty of permanence. I get it. Is there one more in the room? Yeah, please. Um, I was just wondering if you could like, you know, like the, the concept of like invite Mara to be kind of thing. Just like how you relate, like when fear arises, when you're on the cushion and how you like face that, which I mean, it's kind of leading into like what you've already talked about, obviously. I kind of probably know what you're going to say, but just, I love hearing your experience on, direct experience on things like that. You know, uh, so the question is a little bit more around my personal practice is the way I'm hearing it. Um, and, and this encouragement that I give and Buddhism gives that when the difficulties arise, the difficult emotions, the, you know, that part of the mind that wants you to suffer, Mara, we call it Mara, that, that part of the mind that says, you should suffer about this. You should cling to this. You should, you know, hate you should take it personally, you know, that part of your mind that says, you, you should really take this shit personally. And how do I respond to it? And there was a long, let's see, how do I answer this? Where I'm at currently, I think, I feel like there was a long time where I was really trying to be good. I'm really trying in my mind, you know, my Mara would come and be like, I see you, Mara. It's okay for you to be here. I care about you. And honestly, most of the time now I'm like, oh, motherfucker, I see you. That's stupid. You're you want me to no fucking way. It's much more casual in my inner dialogue with my own mind than it used to be where I used to try to be so spiritual, be like, may I be at ease with this? I just wanna, it's okay, you can exist. Everything belongs. And now I have a little bit more of an inner kind of like, all right, bitch, you wanna party? Okay, I see you. I don't believe that shit for a second. And, you know, honestly, that's sort of my, my inner dialogue has become more crude over the years. <laughs> It probably started there, you know, it's kind of started with a kind of like, fuck you. But now there's not a lot of fuck you in, in there. It's just a little, I just have a kind of a crude inner voice. Humor? It's a little bit humorous and it's just a little bit crude, you know, it's just the way that my mind, I don't try to flower it up. Now, some of you are just nice, good people <laughs> and you don't think like that and that's okay. Don't not giving this as advice. I'm just more of like the reality of how my inner voice relates to, and, and even what I see as the wisdom voice uh, isn't as um, soft as I thought it needed to be. And I don't know, I might be fucking the whole thing up, but I don't suffer that much. So it's working pretty good for me. We'll leave it there tonight. Class is done by donation. So good to have such a full class. Welcome to everybody that was new. Against the Stream is 100% supported by your generosity. 
and um, suggested donation for drop-in is 20 to $25. If you can afford that, put it in the basket, send it to Venmo or PayPal, um, helps us pay the rent. We pay $3,500 a month rent on the space. We have a couple of employees to run the social media and the you know retreats and all of that. And if there's anything left over, I get supported. So thank you for your generosity. Please be as generous as you can. Please consider becoming a monthly donor. If you're not already, you have to go onto the website to do that, to say, hey, I just want to give $50 a month or whatever you choose to give, uh, whether you show up or not. So, because we're really trying to get out of that capitalist fee for, ser for, for service. You know, so we intentionally, we don't charge people to come onto the Zoom or, because we want everyone to be able to come. And it's this radical Buddhist concept of generosity, not Buddhist, it's universal but of the teachings are given away for free. And you get to choose how you support the teachings and the teachers and the meditation centers. Um, so be as generous as you want to be and thank you in advance for your generosity. The Memorial Day retreat, uh, May, whatever it is, 27th through 29th, I think this year, is open for registration. We're having it in um, up in the mountains this year and running springs up between Lake Arrowhead and Big Bear. Cool retreat center. Um, there's kind of unlimited capacity because it's a big, huge retreat center. Um, if you want to get a single room, register early because the single rooms are limited. Um, there's lots of doubles and lots of cabins. And it's a um, weekend retreat. And there's some scholarship rates if you can't afford it. Um, there's lower rates available for people that can't afford to pay the full price. I'm going to be here on Wednesday night. I'm subbing for Jason Murphy this Wednesday. There's a Wednesday night uh, group here. So if anybody wants to, to double up and come meditate with me on Wednesday, come same time, 7.30 Wednesdays here. So uh, I'll be here this week on Wednesday. May any goodness that comes from our practice be offered outward in all directions, shared with all living beings. May each one of us get as free as possible. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Good to see everybody. I'll ring the bell so it's official. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.